All right, blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Bracious, chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the land. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, and everything that moves on the earth, and all the flesh of the sea. In your hands they are given. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, like the green herbage. I have given you everything. But flesh, when its soul and its blood you may not eat, However, your blood which belongs to your souls I will demand. Of every beast I will demand it. But of man, of, e of every man for that of his brother I will demand the soul of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply on it. And God said to Noah and to his sons with a saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you, and with every living being that is with you, with the birds, with the animals, with every beast of the land, and with all the departed, uh, and all the, the departed to you, to every beast of the land, and I will confirm my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I give between me and you, and every living being that is with you to generations forever, I have set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall happen when I place a cloud over the earth, and the bow will be seen in the cloud. I will remember my covenant between me and you and every living being among the flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all the earth. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living being among all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is a sign of the covenant that I have confirmed between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham being the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole world was spread out. Noah, the man of the earth, debased himself and planted a vineyard, he drank of the wine and became drunk and was uncovered himself within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness, told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it upon their shoulder, and they walked backward and covered their father's nakedness for their face turned away. And they saw not their father's nakedness. Noah awoke from his wine and realized that his, what his small son had done to him. And he said, Curse is Canaan, a slave of slaves. And he... He is to be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed is Adonai, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a slave to them. May God extend Japheth, but he will dwell in the tents of Shem. May Canaan be a slave to them. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Before I begin to comment on this particular passage, 
and share some insights. I want to make a reference back to the reading of the Besorah that Zakin Rayford read. And it's interesting because we're talking here, of course, the holiday that Yeshua celebrated was Hanukkah. Everybody knows that. The fact of the matter is, everybody does know that, that he celebrated Hanukkah, right? And um, so at Hanukkah, he's talking about miracles. But what's interesting, I want to point out, because the enemy doesn't really have any new tactics per se, but there's tactics he likes to bring up from time to time again. And one of the tactics of the enemy is to say, well, you know, the Yeshua was a Messiah. And so not, you know, there's a bunch of different Messiahs in every generation. And, you know, David's a type of Messiah. They get, and so it's a, it's a, it's a, a mer, uh, murky water where it's like you have a type of Messiah and then you have like a Messiah. So David is like a type of Messiah. But he, we can't really say he was like a Messiah in his generation. Maybe he was to, you try to convolute it a little bit. But some people say, you know, Yeshua was a Messiah. But when they asked Yeshua, they said, are you the Messiah? Just like when they said to Moses, strike a rock and bring us water. And Moses said, God told me to strike the rock, or speak rather to the rock, not strike it, but speak rather to the rock. He didn't say, go speak to any rock, as if any rock could bring you water. See, we're not looking for a rock, we're looking for the rock. And that's what we were looking for in the first century. We weren't looking for just any rock to bring forth water. We wanted the rock that was going to bring forth water. Because not just any rock could take us into the proverbial promised land. We needed the rock to lead us there. So they asked him, are you the Messiah? And he said, I've been telling you this the whole time, but you refuse to listen. That's another trick of the enemy. Is the people don't, they see all the signs, they see all the patterns, but they turn their seer off. And when the people say, well, sh- prove it to me, that's just a trick to get you to get yourself all worked up because they, they're not listening anyway. And Yeshua knew that. He said, if you're not going to listen to my words, at least listen to the miracles I'm doing. Aren't we celebrating miracles right now, by the way? <laughs> In the context of the celebration of miracles, he says, if you're not going to believe what I'm telling you, at least believe the fact that I'm doing miracles before you. So this is, this is a very interesting, I just want to throw that out there, that Yeshua is not a Messiah. He is the Messiah. He is the only Mashiach. And I will tell you what I've said several times on the Aliyah Day, and I've said it a few times on this platform, that if he is not the Mashiach, which he is, don't get me wrong, but Hasvei Shalom, if that were not the case, there won't be one. Because you can't have somebody fit the pattern 100% and not be the, the guy. Because then what would happen? Somebody else would come along and fit the pattern. How would we know he was the guy? Then, then, then if you really think about it, if somebody fits the pattern 100% and is not the person or not the Mashiach, then why do we have the pattern? You've got to put, think, put your thinking caps on. And like I've said today, but if a Jew tried to go grab a donkey in Bethlehem and, and ride from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, he'd be shot by a sniper before he could get, even get the thing untied. What are you talking about? Talking about world events, current world events. All right, the Noahide covenant is not eternal. We're going to lead out with that. 
going to open up the Midrash Rabbah. Or, depending if you come from the Ashkenazi sect, it's the Medrash. Nevertheless, the fact that it's spelled in Hebrew, Midrash, some say it's Medrash. So I want to be included in both covenants. So I'm going to say Medrash. You've got to play. You got to play. The, got to play the game. You know, I'm just kidding. So, from chapter nine comes much, if not all, of what's known as the Noahide covenant. All right. Now, I want to say a few things about this because this is not necessarily going to be a teaching on the Noahide and all that. But there arose a movement in Brooklyn. Um, during the latter half of the 20th century. And I believe that it started out with the right intention. The intention was that, you know what, we need to do some outreach. We need to do some outreach. Because back before then, there wasn't really much outreach. If you were a religious Jewish person, you viewed non-religious Jewish people as... Don't want anything to do with you. All right? And so this particular sect uh, decided that, and the leader of the sect decided that, look, I'm going to try to reach out to, to non-religious Jewish people, and I'm going to try to encourage them to become religious. And one of the tactics was, I say, I don't mean tactic in a bad way, just one of the tactics was to get them to do a mitzvah. And one of the things was to light the Sabbath lights. On Friday night, light the Sabbath lights. Well, that, there was a great opposition to that in the Jewish community because it was considered almost blasphemous that you would have the Sabbath lights burning, but maybe you might be cooking dinner in the kitchen or watching a movie or something like that. But the, this uh, leader's mind was, you know what? One mitzvah leads to another. If I can get somebody to do a mitzvah, that will lead them to do a next mitzvah. And interestingly enough, nobody was critical of the people when they started doing the mitzvahs. Nobody criticized them. Nobody said, hey, you're not doing page 30, 37 of the Shulchan Aruch. But just taught them how to lie, taught them to say the blessing. Encourage them to come to shul. As they come to shul, they learn something else. Imagine then, now your shul is, is potentially half full of people that are cooking on the Shabbat. Nobody says anything. Why? Because the idea is they keep coming to shul, they'll keep learning, keep growing, and the next thing they'll learn, should not do that. Okay, Baruch Hashem, I add that mitzvah now. Nobody accosted them at the door. Spread your feet, hands you're not, you know, what does this also teach you? That in that community, when you're bringing in these non-religious Jews, you're getting them to start embracing the mitzvahs. Now think about it. Y'all, everybody here in this room, everybody's watching online, very intelligent people. I mean it. What does that mean? I mean that everybody's on a different level in the room. It's not a room full of robots. 
when people showed up, they weren't all wearing the same fedora and the same black suit. Because some people came in, maybe they were just, they didn't have a suit. Because that's the first time they've been to shul since they were a little bitty child. Think about it. So anyway, they expanded themselves and decided that we should be reaching the non-Jewish people too. But there's a prevailing thought, it's wrong, but there's a prevailing thought that really only Jews should be keeping Torah and the non-Jews should be keeping the Noahide laws. And so what they did is they started to encourage, allegedly, encourage non-Jews to keep the Noahide laws, the seven Noahide laws. So it became like a, uh, an idea that this was a valid, a, a valid covenant for non-Jews. If you're Jewish, you've got to keep the Torah. Or if I was in Brooklyn, the Torah. Or if you're not Jewish, you keep the seven Noahide laws. And life is fine. A non-Jewish person doesn't have to keep the seven Noahide laws. But God said to the Jewish people, he said to us, you should be a light to the nations. That when they see your Torah keeping, they would say to themselves, has there ever been a nation so wise as this one with a God who's so close to them? And in fact, it is a halacha that when you daven with the tefillin, that you're, even when you're davening alone, you should not cover the tefillin with your tallit. But the tefillin should stick out from your tallit. Why? What's the reason? So that the nations can see it and be drawn to it. Now, I ask you a question. The nations are drawn to the Jew and they say, I see all these missives you're doing. It's amazing. Is there such a people so close as the God as you? You got your tefillin. You got your tefillin. Look what you're doing. It's amazing. The life you live. I'm drawn to the light. I'm here. Teach me. And the, the person says, okay, you see what I'm doing? Everything I'm doing to be close to God, to live with God, yes, I, don't do that. Here's what I want you to do, something completely different. Make sense to you? Of course not. Nonsense, crazy. This is why when you study actual history, which most people don't study today, one of the most hated classes in all of school is not math, it's not science, it's history. The most important class in school that's way more important than math and science is history. Because when you don't know your history, you, will, you are doomed to repeat it. Let me tell you something, you young people, the most important class in your school, even more than math and science, is history. You become somebody who's smart in, in, in history, you know your history, you will be an intelligent person. You'll be like a genius in your world. You say, no, I'll be a genius when I know math. Trust me, trust me. The people that own the big companies, these are people that know history, not math. They hire people that know math. Right? Nothing against math and science. Please don't misunderstand. Those are important subjects. I'm just telling you that history is an important subject. And so when you study history, you find that at no time in Jewish history, at no time in Jewish history, have Jews ever sought Noahides. Ever. In fact, it's the exact opposite. When you study the Jewish, the, the history rather, of Jewish evangelism, Jewish proselytization, beginning with, guess who? Abraham. Beginning with Abraham and Sarah, they went out to find people to convert them to Judaism. Never one time Noahide. Why? 
because they knew something that is not being said today, and that is that the Noahide covenant is not an eternal covenant. And that the other thing is that God only has one flock. Yeshua said, I'm going to go find a people who are not a people, and I'm going to bring them in so that there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, the Christian version of Noahide is Messianic Gentile. That's the Christian version of Noahide. That's all it is. It's the same spirit that wants to shut the kingdom of God in men's faces. Because that is the same spirit because it says, you can come in, no problem. You see me, I'm a Messianic Jew. You see how I'm living for God and, and following God with my whole heart? Yeah, 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 awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah, don't do that. What I'm doing, don't do. There was a book that came out, and it was talking about kosher eating. It was a Messianic book. came out many years ago. talking about kosher eating. The entire book talks about how God hates non-kosher food and how horrible it is and all the scripture about it and just, it just you know, breaks it down. It's, it was actually a very good book, um, breaking down everything about it, using Jewish references to talk about this and how you, you know, the, the people of God need to have a diet of a king and all this kind of stuff. You know. And then the final chapter says, but if you're a Gentile, it's fine. Eat what you want. I was like, Wow. So you've just been telling everybody for nine or eight or nine or seven or ten or however many chapters that all this stuff is an abomination, then you get to that. But if you're born of a certain bloodline, God doesn't care. Wow. Now God judges on, he's a respecter of persons. Wait a minute. That's the exact thing that Kepha said he wasn't. He's, uh, if, if, if I judge you based on, on who your mommy was and decide where, what mitzvahs you should keep and what mitzvahs you shouldn't keep based on your blood, I've just become a respecter of persons, which is exactly what Kepha said. I know now that God is not a respecter of persons. So either we agree with Kepha or we don't. Mm. And he, by the way, he was the head of something. What was he the head of? He was the head of something. He was the head of the, uh, the congregation. That's what it was. He was the head of the congregation. Yeshua put him in charge. Hmm. So it says here, continuously all the days there. I am, by the way, I am in the Medrash. 3411. Continuously all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Now this is actually from chapter 8, verse 22, but we're going to start here and move in. In the three hours we have left here. It says, Rabbi Yudan Veshem Rabbi Shemuel. Rabbi Yudan said, in the name of Rabbi Shemuel, what do the Noahides think? That their covenant with God is sealed and standing forever? Question mark. That is not the case. Rather, only for as long as the heavens and the earth exist, does their covenant exist. The covenant of the Noahide is not eternal. It is only as long as the heavens and earth exist. And yet the promise of the Messiah is, 
I'm going to create a covenant so that there will be a renewal of the heavens and the earth. When the heavens and the earth cease to exist and are renewed, I'll still be standing here, but the Noahides won't. Remember what I said, the Messianic Gentile is just a Christian version of the Noahide. This is the trick of the enemy, to, is to get into a covenant that is not eternal. Why does that exist, by the way? Because people teach that the, the present, the covenant of God is not eternal, like the Torah. So if you're not into eternal covenants, then it won't bother you. It says, alternatively, continuously all the days of the earth, Rab Chuna said in the name of Rab Chaya, or Achas, Zika, what do the Noahides think? That their covenant with God is sealed and standing forever? That is not the case, for thus God said to them continuously all the days of the earth, etc. Seed, time, and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Rather, only for as long as the day and night exist does their covenant exist. But when the day comes regarding which is written, it will be a unique day in which it will be known as Adonai's day, neither day nor night, Zechariah 14, 7. At that time, the following verse will be fulfilled. So my covenant that I seal with the peoples became annulled on that day. This is why Yeshua, when he was talking about his Torah keeping and his, his Torah teaching, he said heaven and earth will pass away before this passes away. Why? Because it's everlasting. Now, according to the Talmud, Avodah Zarah, in 3a, 3b, it talks about the fact that the moment that the children of Israel received the Torah at Mount Sinai, the Noahide covenant became null and void because the, the nations didn't keep it anyway. So those, ver, those seven mitzvahs were taken from them and given to the Jewish people. So there isn't another covenant is my point. The covenant is all one covenant. There's one flock. There's one Messiah. There's one God. There's one way. That's what I'm trying to say here. Now, I want to ask a question here, euphemistic, not euphemistically, but um, rhetorically. Are you a son of Abraham or are you a son of Noah? Don't answer yet. Some of y'all trying to jump the gun on me. Don't answer yet. I want to read this to you, and I want you to answer the question for yourself. Because Father Abraham, many sons... Many sons had. Oh, you got to decide what family you belong to. This you got to decide what family you belong to. And by the way, don't let anybody steal that identity from you. Identity theft is on the rise. You got to get life lock from God. Life lock from God. Don't let anybody steal your identity. Why do you let people carjack you like that? You're not a Jew. I'm so sorry. I did not enter the covenant with you. I'm so sorry. It's not you and I. We're not. He and me. We're together. It says, Apro, Apropos, Apropos, Slika. This is in Yoma 28b. Apropos, the previous statement. The Gemara cites that Rav said, Abraham, our patriarch, fulfilled the entire Torah before it was given, as it stated, 
because Abraham hearkened to my voice and kept my charge, my mitzvot, my statues, and my Torahs, with an S. Genesis 26.5. Rav Shimi Barhiya said to Rav, and say that the verse means that he fulfilled only the seven Noahide mitzvot and not the entire Torah. The Gemara asks, but isn't it there also circumcision that Abraham observed, which is not part of the seven Noahide laws? <clears throat> Apparently, Abraham fulfilled more than just those seven, and the Gemara asks and say that he fulfilled only the seven mitzvot and circumcision. But Rob said to him, or said rather, if so, why do we need the continuation of the verse? No, Abraham kept all the mitzvot and all the Torah. This is a clear indication that he fulfilled the mitzvot even beyond the seven Noahide mitzvot and apparently fulfilled the entire Torah itself. Yoma 28b. So on the one hand, you have people that would say, well, it just be a Noahide and follow the seven Noahide mitzvahs. And, and then the Christian version is, just be a Gentile, but be one that kind of couples with us to fulfill our mission. In other words, write us checks. That's what that means theologically. Oh, can I be honest? I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was supposed to be honest. But in actuality... Abraham fulfilled the entire Torah before it was even officially given. Why? Because it's always existed. So if you are a son or daughter of Abraham, then you are supposed to do what your father is doing or did. So you have to ask yourself, are you a son of Abraham or a son of Noah? Because our father Abraham obeyed the entire Torah and so did he teach his son Isaac who taught his son Jacob, who taught all 12 of his sons. To the extent that when Yosef went to Egypt, he decided to teach Torah to all of Egypt. And by the way, it never says in any of the rabbinic writings that Yosef was trying to make the Egyptians Noahides. You know how we know that? I'll give you one guess. Who watched the Aliyah day? Don't raise your hand if you didn't. He had them circumcised which is not one of the seven Noahides. So right off the bat, we learn that Yosef was not seeking Noahides in Egypt, which would have been presumably the best place to find them, right? Apparently, he didn't get the memo, memo from Brooklyn. Now, Midrash Shabbat 34, 14, for those people out there that are still thinking, yeah, but I don't want to do all those Jewish things. A lot of Jewishness. Okay, okay, I know, I know, I know. I follow the God of Israel, and I read the scriptures of Israel, and I believe in the Messiah of Israel. And I want one day when I die, I'm going to live in the New Jerusalem. But I don't want to be a Jew. That makes total sense, right? <laughs> total sense, right? So somebody like me comes along and says, no, you should live Jewishly in Messiah. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if I want to. I kind of like, I kind of dig in this whole Messianic Gentile Noah slash Noahide thing where I can do just basically nothing and still reap all the benefits. Isn't this great? Here's what they didn't tell you in the fine print on your Noahide contract. Are you ready? They sold you a timeshare but didn't tell you 
about all the costs. You get a timeshare in Jerusalem. You have to share it with a million other Noahides, but here it is. Medrash, Medrash Rabbah, 3414. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Rabbi Hanina said, all of the laws that follow are among the laws of the Noahides specifically. A Noahide may be convicted through the testimony of only one witness, through the decision of only one judge, without witnesses and without warning for a crime committed even through an agent. Okay, let me break that down for you. It means that Noahides are under stricter judgment. If you are a Jewish person, you require two witnesses to convict you of a crime that warrants death, and that can only happen in front of at least 21 judges. Depending on your status, it, it, would, it, would, it might require the full Sanhedrin, which tells us that Yeshua had a very high status because he was brought before the full Sanhedrin. They considered him a sage. You can't convict a sage by a small court. It has to be the full Sanhedrin. So if you want to sign on to the Messianic Gentile slash Noahide contract, just know that in your contract in the fine print, it says you will undergo a stricter judgment. And you could be convicted on a much, in a much easier manner. You know, it's like people say that if you've ever, you've, you've may have heard this in the news, somebody was indicted by a grand jury. People that hear that kind of stuff, they're like, oh, he is guilty. He's under indictment. Woo! And the media plays that up. An indictment is the easiest conviction you can get in a court. It's not even a conviction. It's the easiest ruling, we put it that way, you can get in a court. Because it's all prosecution, there's no defense in a grand jury. No defense whatsoever. So the indictment just means that you are, the charges stand and you have to now go to trial for those charges. Now you get to have your defense and all that kind of stuff. So the, the, the indictment is just, it's, it's the lowest bar. But if you follow this train of thought, a, a non-Jew, a Gentile, a Noahide would, have to, would be convicted with an indictment. Because you only need one witnesses. There's no, there you got, and if you, and if you have just, if you have a judge presiding, you, you don't even have to have any witnesses. Did you catch that? So for those who want to sign on to these kinds of things, you have to kind of think it through about what's going on. So the bottom line is, is that we're talking about the Noahide movement here with, um, with the story of Noah. It's, it's not really true. That's, that's really the bottom line. There's only one covenant. And it makes people upset when I talk about this. Uh, not necessarily people here, but people um, elsewhere. I really don't care. I'm kind of over that. But um, it makes people upset because what they're teaching two covenants to people. They're teaching people that based on your, on your bloodline, God wants you to live one way. Or, or maybe another way. You're going to get steak if you're a natural born child and 
If you're not a natural born child, you're going to get corned beef hash. But, you, but, but we want you to feel good about it, though. Because the reason I'm giving you the slop is because um, it's, it's called grace. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Daddy, how come I don't get the steak? Well, honey, you're not one of my natural born children. But I'm giving you the slop and the leftovers because of my deep love for you and, I, and, and my unmerited favor. As I'm, as I'm putting the, flame, the, the, the big old filet of steak in my natural born kid's plate with all the fixings. And look at that. Big old glass of wine. I'm giving you some uh, Kool-Aid and some slop. But everybody's excited, you know. How many of you would be excited about that if you grew up in such a home? No, no, I'm asking you. How many people would be excited if you grew up in such a home? And then, and then, but, but see, this is how, I love to say these kind of things because we think one way in life and then we come to theology and we, we just lose our mind. Like we would probably be in juvenile detention for arson because we burned the house down if that happened to us if we lived in such a house. But yet we come to God and we're like, this is so cool the way this works. I was thinking about this thought and it was just random thoughts in my mind as I'm coming to the shul. And I was thinking about being detail-oriented. Some of you know that my profession um, prior to this um, last week was I, w- <laughs> I was an uh, executive recruiter. So I worked with a lot of companies to find uh, people in all kind of uh, high-level positions. And there became, th- you always receive this list of, of this must-haves. And there was one must-have, there's many of them, but one in particular that I'm thinking about, was on every, every company, no matter who they were, no matter what they did, they had this one must-have, and it became almost cliche-ish, okay? It was important, don't get me wrong, but it was on every one of them, and this is it. Must be detail-oriented. That's on everything, right? Nobody wants a not detail-oriented employee. It's everywhere. It's, it's like, yeah, 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 I got it. Detail-oriented, right? Check. Got it. So you're interviewing somebody. You want to find out the detail-oriented. Okay. So I was thinking about the fact that in our, in, our, in our world that we live, when it comes to business, when it comes to life, what mom out there is not detail-oriented, right? Everybody, we're detail-oriented in every aspect of our life. You just can't get the stuff. You've got to read the directions, right? You don't read the directions, and you can mess something up. The details are in the directions. And so we're all detail-oriented. Then when we come to God, we don't want any Torah because we don't want the details. So we want our religion not to be detail-oriented and somehow expected to work, and then we want to go to work and be very detailed in what we do. And we don't understand. We, no one ever stands up and says, you ever think about that? That you're very detail-oriented at work. When it comes to serving God, you want no details. You want God to say, I don't care. I have no details. Do what you want to do. Serve me however you want to serve me. I have no details. Just love me. See how that's worked out? By the way, I know that a lot of times we have on children's, and it's, a, it's fine. I'm not, when I say these kind of things I'm about to say, I don't mean that we should you know, throw away our children's rainbows. But 
rainbows are kind of like a cute symbol, like little kids. I wanted to buy Hadassah a rainbow purse. She wouldn't let me. Sam Moon. Which I think the name is Pagan, so I rebuked it when I walked in. But anyway, you see the uh, rainbows on stuff, like they have little rainbows and uh, unicorns, right? And so, but people don't know that the rainbow in Jewish thought, the rainbow is actually a symbol to remind God not to destroy the earth again because he was about to. In other words, when you see a rainbow in the cloud, it's because, this according to the Jewish idea, that this place deserves annihilation, but the rainbow appears so that God should look at it and say, all right, I'm not going to do that again. Which is interesting because, don't say it out loud, but who else uses the rainbow? So here's the deal. The reason that God said, I will never, because this is another thought. The reason that God said, I'll never drown the earth again, basically, in the flood wasn't because he woke up and said, oh, I can't believe I did that. Hey, what was I thinking? That was, pretty, uh, that was pretty mean to me. Look at all those animals driving me, people. That's not what he said. He said, I don't, I'm not going to do this again because once you've mikvahed the earth, it doesn't require mikvahing again because it's been put in a position now to have the potential to make teshuvah. Now, this is why Yeshua said to Peter, when Peter said, don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body. And he says, Peter, I've already washed you. I don't need to wash you again. Because, because you believe in me, Peter, you have the potential to make teshuva. Now, why do we have that story? Why was it only Peter? You've got to know that the other guys were like, yeah, yeah, make for me too. Why, why did we have the story of Peter only? Was he the only one who was so holy? No. But it was because we're, we were about to see a story play out where Peter would have the potential to make teshuva. He was about to play out the story where he had the ability to make teshuva. And, and Rebetzin has often said, these people that sometimes in their life turn away from the Messiah, were they ever really in him? And I don't know if that's questions up for debate, but I often wonder the same thing. Because if you've really been immersed in him, I mean, really, if you've really been immersed with him, in him, and I would encourage everybody, everybody who's watching, everybody in Lapid Nation all across the world, to be sure and immerse in the Mashiach. To immerse your life in Messiah, to really make sure that he is your Mashiach. That he's the one. You understand that you're here if you're listening to these sources and you're listening to me. Or you, you know what you know. I know what I know. I've said this before, but I know what I know because of him. I think I mentioned this to one of the guys, but I will never forget this story. It's one of those things that you, you wonder why something stands out to you. It probably becomes obvious, but when I was in the service, I was on a, a mountain, a cold mountain, a rainy mountain in California. And we were doing uh, exercises out there. 
like military type, you know, painted faces kind of stuff out there. And I saw this deuce and a half drive away with all these Marines on it. And of course, me back then, I was kind of smart, ugly, and sarcastic, and um, what have you. And so I was like, where are those guys going? Like, how come they don't, uh, why, it's raining, it's cold out here, I want to go. Where are they going? And uh, one of the other guys said to me, he said, those are, the, uh, those are the Jewish Marines, and they're going down for the Passover. And of course, back then, I was not at all religious at all, and totally secular. I, I think I didn't even really know what that was, but I wanted to go. <laughs> I was like, what? I want to go. And so I just remember thinking now, all these years back, all these been years since I was there, that nobody came to ask me if I want to go. No Jewish Marines came to me and said, hey, you've got this thing going on. You want to come with us? The, the, the chaplain rabbi did not come to me. He didn't come to my, my platoon and say, anybody want to go? Do you know who did? Yeshua. Yeshua came to me and said, follow me. You want to go? You want to come to the meal with me? He was the one who came to get me to tell me, you want to have a seat at my table? wasn't anybody else. So always remember that. that that's, that's what we have to keep in our heart. So the result of the flood, it says here in the K.O. Dumas, the explanation is at the very beginning of creation, all was water because dry land did not yet exist. Spiritually, this means that the world was filled with the divine awareness only. Because water equals Torah. So when the land came, now we've got a mixture. So in order for the earth to eventually reach this stage, it first had to be immersed in water of the flood, which destroys the earth. So in order for the earth to be brought to the point where it can become one, as it were, with the water, it had to be immersed in water. And this is why when people say, well, I'm a spiritual Jew, or I'm a spiritual son of Abraham, that doesn't mesh in Jewish thought because the reason you went into the water is so that your whole being, body, soul, and spirit, could become one with the living word. That your flesh can be subdued. And I, I, I cringe when I hear people say, I'm a spiritual Jew. I was like, what does that mean? You're not, a, you're not a fleshly disciple either? Think about it. That I don't follow God in my flesh, only in my spirit. That, by the way, is agnostic thought, by the way. The very thing that the apostle was writing letters about was not about Judaism. It was about Gnosticism. That's the very thing what people embrace today. That's the irony. They reject the Torah and embrace Gnosticism, the exact thing that the apostle was trying to get them to do the reverse of. So, it says here, where am I? The image of God. That's one more insight here before we conclude. Is y'all still with me out there? All right, Brukashim, just making sure. Ma'am Loez. Ma'am Loez brings down, because we have here this, this, this discussion about the dread of the animals being on the people, on mankind. Okay? It says here, 
One might find this very surprising since there are many cases on record where lions have attacked people and even eaten them. This is what Ma'am Loez writes. He says, In such cases, the individual had committed a sin for which the penalty was death. But since there was no witnesses, the courts could not impose this penalty. But God does let the criminal, does not rather, let the criminal go free. God has many messengers to punish those who deserve it. And in some cases, these are wild animals. So it says, before a wild animal can attack a human being, he must appear to him like an animal. Only then would they even dare to attack him. So therefore, if it had appeared to him like a human being, they would flee for him. So great is their terror of mankind. What causes the man to appear like an animal to an animal? And the answer is sin, because when we sin, we become like the animals. If a person does good works and has pity on the poor, he will never lose his human aurora, and no animal will be able to approach him to harm him. Can you say Daniel in the lion's den? Adam had another great advantage in that he had authority over all the living creatures. God thus had told him, dominate the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every beast that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.28. God was telling Adam, if you act properly, you can dominate all living creatures. However, if you do not act properly, then they will dominate you. In Hebrew, it says here, the word for dominate is redu. This is usually understood to come from the root rada, meaning dominate or rule. However, it can also come from the root yarad, meaning descend. The expression, therefore, contains both connotations. If you act properly, you will dominate and rule. If not, you will descend and become debased before all animals. Since the people who lived before the flood were very wicked, they were brought down very low, even to the depths of the sea. So when we sin, we become like the animals. It's interesting to note that in Judaism, right or wrong, they viewed in the first century non-Jews like animals. Why? Because they didn't follow the Torah. To not follow the Torah is to sin. To sin is to make you like an animal. Therefore, to follow the Torah is to ascend above the animals and find your place like Adam. So the moral of the story is we want to be like our father Abraham and rise up, not be like others who break the Torah and go down. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai.